You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Well, in uh, two weeks, we will go to two services, and you may be looking around thinking, I'm not sure why we understood that this would be the trajectory. Our numbers will be down, but that's okay. We are continuing to grow. Last week's numbers were down 40 from the week before, but they were up 60 from a year ago. Now, that's a big shift. And so we expect the continued growth. We're getting two, three, four families every week that are coming. And you know some of those guys are going to say, these people are not too weird. So maybe this will be a place to check out. Um, and so, uh, be prepared for smaller numbers. Don't be discouraged about it when you look in the service. We'll rearrange the seating a little bit, and hopefully, uh, the Lord will continue the growth. And if He doesn't, what's the worst that could happen? We go back to one service, and we'll all be happy, right? Um, two services will require ways for us to get together as one body. Uh, Not everybody can, obviously, but we're going to make as many opportunities as possible. Well, not a a, a lot, but we just want to be committed to doing things like we're going to be doing three weeks from today. On March 24th, we're going to have a potluck at 5.30 p.m. here at the church. And on those weeks where we have special gatherings like that, we're encouraging the home groups not to meet that week. Even if you don't meet on Sunday and you could meet another night of the week, we're encouraging you not to, just to take a break. Uh, I know it sounds really uh, silly for me to say this, but I hope that you don't insist that you meet. Some of you will, and that's okay, especially uh, the groups that tend to have older folks. I know a lot of times they just love to meet every chance they get, and, and, and that's great for you to do that. But too much can be too much, but we'll talk more about that um, later. So here's the question, what brings you joy? I look in a church service like this, 80% of the questions can be answered by just saying Jesus, and you've got the right answer, right? (laughs) This is really one of those uh, questions that you could answer Jesus, and it would be a perfect answer. Uh, There are other things, though, that bring us joy, such as family and celebrations and helping those in need and, and, and entertainment and sports. And a good night's sleep. Those are things that bring us great joy. Although it's almost cliche, there's a, there's a huge difference. Although it's not discernible when you're younger sometimes between happiness and true joy. The older you get as, as a follower of Christ, the more you're able to discern between happiness and joy. That doesn't mean that you're joyful all the time and that you're saying, okay, I'll go for this instead of this. But it does mean that you know what's not true joy. There are many who think that joy is antithetical to the Christian life. A Christian, if you're too joyful, something's wrong. You're having too much fun there, I believe, as a believer there. The Puritans of old had mostly good theology, but you don't think of them as the most joyful of souls. Uh, It's unfortunate that I did not discover these Uh, earlier, you've already seen, some of you have already seen the Puritan Valentines. I sure wish I had discovered this in time to give Allison one of these 
uh, delightful Valentine's. Here are just, just a couple of samples. Roses are red, violets are blue, and neither are useful or necessary at all. <laughs> you would have loved that one, wouldn't you, honey? Okay, here's another one. Uh, happy Valentine's. Let us never speak of this again. <laughs> my personal favorite, though, you almost make my heart dance, and dancing is forbidden. <laughs> That's why I never dance, Allison, at wedding receptions. I mean, we had, a, we had an opportunity last night, actually. When they started dancing, I said, let's go. We had a young Grace Community Church couple that got married yesterday. Austin Maine, Rachel Holder. It was a beautiful service, and there was so much celebration. Speaking of dancing, I mean, look, when they, when the, at the recessional, they got halfway down the aisle, and they started, you know, doing their thing. And, and, and then moved on. It was just a time of great joy. And that's the way it's supposed to be, right? In case you missed the ceremony last night, which most of you did, we're all invited to a wedding this morning in John 2, verses 1 through 11. So... As you start turning over there, I want to ask, what about this Christian life? Is it supposed to be joyful? It is. Do some believers live as though they probably send Puritan Valentines and as if they want to restrict other believers from having any fun at all? Everything they do seems to be perfectly designed to kill joy. They do. Do some Christians distort the truth, distort the truth by living as though they believe that the lesson of John 2 is that they can live any way they want and that life is a party. They do. So where's the balance? God's word is going to help us as we dig beneath the surface of the account of the wedding at Cana in John 2 verses 1 through 11. This morning we're going to focus on three points of the text that are in inverse order to their placement in the text. We're going to think about the glory of God that is revealed in Jesus. What does that mean? The place and function of Jesus' signs in the Gospels. Other Gospels talk about miracles. John talks about signs. What's up with that? We're going to talk about that. And then the joy of life in Jesus. And Look, you may be here this morning with an incredibly heavy heart. But that doesn't preclude you from having joy in life that is in Jesus. So let's get to the text. Consider as we go that just as, in, as Jesus implied during this time of celebration that he was heading to the cross, even so, in this service, we're heading to the table where we remember Jesus' sacrifice for us at the cross. Our text is John 2, 1 to 11. Would you please stand for the reading of Scripture. <clears throat> I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. On the third day, that's the third day, by the way, after Nathaniel. If you look in John 1, this day, the next day, the next day, then after the third day. A lot of people think it's symbolic of Jesus' resurrection after the third day. So, Again, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana 
in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with the water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And then when people have drunk freely, the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Let's pray. Our Father... Uh, we are so grateful for the truth of your word and for the promise that is in the words that we have read this morning. The promise of eternal life and the promise of abundant life here and now. And it doesn't always feel that way. But we know that the promises of God are true. And so, Lord, open our hearts and give us joy. Unexpected joy, undeserved joy, unanticipated, but Lord, full and complete joy in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thanks and be seated. Cana was an inconspicuous place. That's a that's a that's a polite way of saying an inconspicuous place for Jesus to perform his first recorded miracle. None of the synoptic gospels even mention Cana. And John only mentions it one more time in John 21 where he says that's where Nathaniel is from. It was about six miles from Cana. I believe north is a direction where, I mean six miles from Nazareth. I think it was north of Nazareth. Remember last week when we talked about the notion of a lot of people rejecting Jesus, saying the Messiah, there's no way the Messiah can come from Nazareth. Well, Cana was actually that place that the people of Nazareth were proud not to be from. You know, it's like, hey, you think Nazareth something? Where do you see Cana? And verse 11 says that was the place where Jesus first manifested his glory in front of his disciples. And they believed in him or into him, literally. It's kind of like the Lord comes and he goes to McGee's Crossroad, and there it is. Bam. He first manifested his glory in that place. You will recall from John 1 that the glory of God is revealed to us in Jesus, but it is glory that is veiled. Jesus manifested the glory of God selectively 
in his first advent. He did not reveal his glory before Pilate or before Herod, but here before his disciples and before the servants, and then others heard about it as well, he manifested his glory by turning water into wine. The Hebrew word that is used for glory most often in the, in the Old Testament is kavod. And it means heaviness or weight. This is more information than you want, but doxa, the Greek word, usually translates kavod in the Septuagint. Um, it means heaviness or weight. A large person in ancient times was a glorious person because he or she had enough money to eat well. I'm working on that glory as hard as I can. Uh, it, it, God was weighty, and so the point is God is weighty. He's heavy, and not in a 1960s kind of way like, whoa, man, that's really heavy. But it was be quiet and give attention. God is worth your trust as your provider and protector and redeemer. And he is also able and willing to crush you if you are not attentive. This is heavy. This is important. God's glory is not something to be played around with. It will ultimately work for you or against you. God's glory in Jesus was evident from his birth to those who had eyes to see. Think about the shepherds who were alerted that the Messiah had been born in Bethlehem. <coughs> Often, in Jesus' life, such as at the transfiguration, uh, we see the glory of God revealed in Jesus. God's glory would be fully revealed at the cross. And when Jesus said to Mary in John, uh, in verse 4, John 2, 4, my hour has not yet come. He was almost certainly referring to the crucifixion, not to his public ministry. He wasn't saying, hey, I'm not going to get started doing miracles and healing people because my hour has not yet come. He was saying, I'm not sure what you're asking here. My hour has not yet come, the hour that I will be crucified and pay for the sins of men and women. Let's think about this exchange between Mary and Jesus found in these first five verses of the text. Jewish weddings in uh, the first century were quite the celebratory affairs. To give a brief description, marriages were arranged, as you know. And so here's a groom over here, and the bride is over here, the home of the bride. The groom would go to the bride's house, and he would purchase the right to marry the daughter of the man and woman, but particularly the man who lived in this home. He purchased the right to have this wife. Once the arrangements were made, he would go back and prepare a home or prepare a room for her. Most likely it was a room that was attached to his father's house. <clears throat> it would take about a year or so <clears throat> for him to do it usually. That's typical. So they were officially betrothed when he went and negotiated this marriage. It had all been arranged by the parents. Look, I'm sure some <coughs> kids had some say in some family, some of the, the, the young men and women. But for the most part, it was decided by the parents. Now, you may think of that as being unromantic. It's not, not at all. 
Because love is a choice, is it not? Is it true that sometimes there's this immediate chemistry? Absolutely. Is it necessary? No, it's not. I don't know how you came together, and I don't know what state your marriage is in or your relationship with your boyfriend or girlfriend or your fiancé. But in the end, if you're going to love your spouse well, you're going to choose to do it. And there are arranged marriages all over the world that work out quite nicely, thank you. So, <clears throat> they're, they've made this agreement. They are betrothed. That is much more binding than an engagement. Now, Allison would tell you, you can ask her about this. If you're engaged and you're saying, I think this is not the best thing for me to do, you're going to need to give me a lot of explanation why. Because when you give your word that I will marry you, then that's binding in my book, unless there is a very good reason for you to pull apart. I understand. Two wrongs don't make a right, yada, 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 all of that. I get all of that. But be serious when you're getting engaged. You need to know that I will spend the rest of my life with this person. You need to know <clears throat> enough about that person before you say yes or before you ask. It's that important. So he goes home. He's working on the house. And um, she's getting ready. He's got his people. She's got her people. And then one night, he, she doesn't know when. When it all is ready... It's going to be a Wednesday night if she's a virgin or a Thursday night if she's being married for the second time. They're going to, all the guys just out of the blue are going to get their torches. It's going to be this huge thing going on in the town. They're going to come over and say, the house is ready. Now come with me. And she's got her attendants and they get their torches. And this is a huge celebration in town. And they go back to the house. And they're married and they have like a week or two long reception that the parents of the groom are responsible or the groom himself is responsible for putting on. This was an expensive <clears throat> undertaking. And all of the expenses were on the parents of the groom. Now, it's a lot different today, right? It's, it seems to be the other way around. And here's another thing about Jewish weddings that is so utterly un familiar to us. But the focus of the attention in that wedding is on the groom. I did one wedding with, with completed Jews, Jewish couple, and both of his parents walked him down the aisle, and the bride walked around him three times, and then they crushed the glass, you know, and all of that stuff, the, the cool. And these Jewish ceremonies are celebration-oriented. They, they, they love, it's like Life and lachem is to life. And you hear that all the time. Or lachem, I don't know. We've got our Hebrew expert over here, Anthony. But I'll have to ask him after. <laughs> but, but there's this sense of celebration. And can you see in all the things that I just said about those Jewish weddings, how connected they are to all of Jesus' talk about coming back and be ready and the five Wise virgins and the five foolish virgins who had oil enough for their lamp and getting shut out and the hour not being known, a sense of, of the fact that he's coming and when the room is ready, when all is ready, 
The fathers make the decisions. All of that wrapped up in the truth of God's love for us and his design for us. When the bride and groom were officially married, then the celebration, it was only beginning celebration. So, rabbis and their disciples were an important presence at these celebrations. There are a lot of indications that this was a wealthy family in uh, John chapter 2. I mean, they had these big wine jars these that held 20 or 30 gallons of water, excuse me, water for purification. <clears throat> they had a lot going on there. But they had run out of wine, and running out of wine left them open to disgrace, <clears throat> possibly even a financial penalty for not promising what they had, had, had or not delivering on what they had promised. Now, just imagine that. You go to reception... And they don't have enough food. And so you say, look, I want some money back. Or, I mean, I just want some money. That's a pretty good deal if you can find one of those places where you go to. <clears throat> but there was a lot riding on this. It's like Jim Acock always says. It's better to have and not need than to need and not have. Remember that at the potluck, 24th of March, when you're preparing <clears throat> food. And don't ever say, oh, We had so much food left over. No. This is the expectation. Jesus had an expectation when he went to this feast that there would be an abundance of food and wine. Why did he expect that? Well, he's like, oh, there's just so many connections here. He's bringing an abundance of food and wine. We'll talk about that in just a few minutes. Mary is always identified as the mother of Jesus in John and not by her name. Perhaps Mary was a cousin of the groom's family, which may explain why she knew about the crisis. Even as I was reading through, that just made more and more sense to me. I've been thinking about it all week, but it made more sense as we were reading the text a while ago. Probably she was. And so that explains how she knew about the crisis. And thus she told Jesus that the hosts were out of wine. This was an opportunity for Jesus to reveal his glory. And he did not pass it up. The disciples were so convinced that they had seen God's glory after what Jesus did. That they believed into him. We've talked about this before. Pistuo ace is the Greek construction that typically indicates belief into a person. Listen to the way Leon Morris describes this. Very well said. It's not believing what he says is true, but but it's trusting him as a person. It's more than just, you know, me saying, Matt, I, I, I do believe that, you know, Matt and Gina are very reliable people. But when I trust them, that takes it to a whole new level. And they're taking their faith in Jesus or their understanding of who he is to a whole new level. They are believing into him. When it comes to Jesus, there are no halfway measures. One of John's purposes in writing his gospel was to reveal what he had seen of God's glory and invite us to see the same thing. Either you see God's glory in Jesus or you don't. 
If you fail to see the glory of God in Jesus, it's not because you were not made aware of who he was and who he claimed to be. Perhaps, though, you missed the signs. It's the focus of the second point, which is a very brief point. The place and function of Jesus' signs in John's gospel. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, that would be a quick way of saying Mark and Luke, I suppose, or the synoptic gospels, we're told that Jesus gave sight to the blind, he healed the lame. Sometimes his miracles are referred to as mighty works. In John, the miracles are called signs. Well, if you have a King James Version, it will say miracles. But the word, the Greek word, is semeon. It's properly translated sign. And it's translated that in almost every other translation, including the New King James Version. Have you ever thought, you ever thought about this? Why would this be the first sign? Jesus is turning water into wine. Why not the feeding of the 5,000? Why not raising Lazarus? But Jesus is making himself known to all of us first by turning water into wine. I think it has to do with glory and joy and death and life. It's all interwoven in our text. It'll make sense as we go. It's also tied to the prologue. Almost every single message from John could go back to the prologue. You know how when you're in, the, in an airplane and you look at that uh, page where the flights go and they all come to this one hub? It's like that. You could, it, it just goes, everything goes out from the prologue. You could tie it all together. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. Almost all New Testament scholars agree that there are seven signs in John, and they agree on six of those signs, but what about the seventh? Why is it? Look, maybe explain this as we go. Talk a lot more about it in home group this week. Uh, what are the six signs? You'll find out tonight or this later in, in home group. There is so much more that could be and likely will be said about these signs in John's gospel. But that's at least a little introduction uh, to our last point. The joy of life in Jesus. How do you uh, think of Jesus at this celebration? In the past... I always thought of Jesus as an extremely serious person who probably walked around singing about this. Neil and I were both up here standing like this, and I'm trying, you know, to do any other way. But, but I, I thought about, I used to think about Jesus as, you know, one who goes, and then every once in a while he'll stop and he'll say, Behold, the fig tree, a parable. And, you know, then he would, he, he would share. That is almost certainly a wrong impression of Jesus. My first wife, Linda, who was dear to me and dear to those of you who knew her, was the one who first enlightened my understanding of Jesus most likely being a very happy person. Interesting 
that it was 11 years ago this day, exactly, that Linda passed from death to life and has for some time now been experienced full, experiencing <clears throat> full joy in Jesus' presence. It is also appropriate, I think, that my second wife, Allison, who is dear to me and dear to you, is one of the most celebratory, she would say, people that you will ever know. The lady loves a party. I'm going to tell you. I'm just going to tell you. Not inappropriate parties, but she loves to have a good time. Look, I do a lot of weddings over the years, and I'll say to her, we can't stay so long in, in, the, in, in the reception because we've got to get ready for tomorrow morning and all that. Man, she's not having any of it. It's like, we're staying for the speeches. And then I've learned if I can get out when they start dancing, well, I'm, I'm good, we're good. You know? I am a really good dancer at, long, at home alone by myself, but <laughs> otherwise... <laughs> Parties that are filled with life and joy, but are balanced, are a beautiful thing. That's the kind of celebration Mary and Jesus and his disciples were enjoying at Canaan. If you view Jesus like I used to view Jesus, you probably saw him at this wedding reception at Cana, kind of like Strider at the Prancing Pony, you know, off to the side brooding furrowed brow while all the hobbits are drinking and their tongues are being loosened and he's like, oh, you're being foolish. You shouldn't do that. That is highly unlikely that this was the picture. Jesus was almost certainly at the center of joy at this wedding without detracting from the couple. He wouldn't have done that. And then the wine ran out. Now, first a word about wine. Was this wine or grape juice? Really, do we even have to discuss this? Uh, the master of ceremonies said to the groom, everyone else serves the good wine first, and when people's tastes have been dulled, they bring out the cheap wine. It, he's not saying everyone brings the good grape, Welch's grape juice out at first, and then they use the, you know, the what's the Walmart brand, you know, whatever it is. <clears throat> the good, uh, whatever. So... He's talking about wine. What do you think of when you hear the word wine? It's not pleasant for some of you. Some of you have suffered greatly because of the influence of alcohol in your home. And I do not make light of that. I'm sorry. Others of you think of wine as a symbol of joy. Psalm 104 14 and 15, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock, plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of men, all to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. You know, one of the lessons of this, I don't have this written down, but it, it, it's so true. We like to say it's all about God, it's all about Jesus. And that's almost moving toward the Puritan understanding of life. And, you know, we must glorify God and not... But God is all about us. 
And he's all about this abundance of joy and rich food and rich wine that he showers on us. And I realize, I realize that not everybody has that. But all who follow Jesus one day are going to have that. And that's part of this lesson is that it's going to be a feast and a celebration that you can't even imagine it's going to be so good. So wine gladdens a heart, but Proverbs 20 verse 1 also says, wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler. So which of these descriptions is true? Yes, we, they're both true. Wine is appropriate in moderation if you're old enough to drink. <clears throat> and one of the reasons that, you're, that you have to be a certain age to drink, it probably ought to be about 25. Your brain's not fully formed until then. And so you're, likely, you're more likely to make foolish. Oh, who am I kidding? I'm likely to make foolish. We're all likely to make foolish decisions. But you especially are when you're young. So don't drink before the age. And if you are an alcoholic or you have propensities in that direction, stay away from alcohol. It will ruin your life and the lives of those around you. And if you're a believer, just think this way. You're going to be able to drink beautifully God's wine in the kingdom of God. You can enjoy it then. To be drunk in the Old Testament is a sign of being under the judgment of God. It's a serious thing. Keeping that balance, not always easy, but it's very important. Wine, like so many other things, such as food or medicine or sex, can be an incredible blessing, but they can also be a curse that ruins our lives if we don't partake according to God's design. John's gospel is full of symbolism. It's important to understand the context in which he is using wine. Wine used properly in scripture is a symbol of joy, as attested to in Psalm 104. You may recall from, from Isaiah 25 that one of the signs of the Messiah is that he is going to bring a feast of rich food and rich Wine. I think I said at the time, and couldn't have gotten away with this in the early years here at Grace. Probably don't get away with it as much as I think I do now. But it's not against, that God's against wine. He's against cheap wine, you know, because he brings this rich wine, rich food. And it's a sign of the Messiah. And is that not something interesting? It's a sign of the Messiah coming to bring rich why? That's why I'm not so sure that Jesus was rebuking his mother when he implied that he should, she implied he should do something about the wine running out. First of all, know this, that when Jesus was on the cross, he called Mary woman. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. He was not dis being disrespectful in either place. While almost everyone understands Jesus' comment as a rebuke, and I understand because in the Greek and Hebrew both, this idiom can, can be sort of in that direction. I wonder, though, if perhaps Jesus was asking a question to emphasize a point in the same way that he did with the rich young ruler. Remember what, when the rich young ruler said, what must I do, or rich young man, what must I do to inherit 
eternal life. Good master, what must I do? Jesus said, good master? Why do you call me good? There's only one who is good, and that's God. So in other words, he was essentially saying, you're, you're saying that I'm good. Are you saying that I'm God? You've got the point. But he missed the point, didn't he? Because ultimately that conversation didn't go the way it was supposed to. So maybe Mary says to Jesus, they've run out of wine. He's never performed any miracles before. But he says, what do you think? What, what am I? You think that I'm supposed to do something about this that has wine as a symbol? Either way, either way, Mary's response was exactly as ours should be. Do whatever Jesus tells you. That's always a good word, isn't it? Jesus told the servants to fill the stone water uh, jars with water. These jars had been used for ceremonial washing as a part of the law. They represented the law. With John's consistent commitment to detail, he said that they filled the vessels to the brim with water. When they drew out the water, it was changed into wine as they delivered it. So here at the end of the message, think about the multiple implications in play in our text. Jesus met a practical need. Rescuing the groom and the bride from deep embarrassment. They would have had an abundant supply of wine. Clearly, it's, you know, they drew the water out, and by the time it got to the, to the master of the feast, it had become wine. But it's highly unlikely that John tells us that they filled the jars to the brim without implying that it was all wine in the end. Now, the experts, the people who, who know this kind of thing, say that that would have equaled about 1,000 bottles of the best wine on the earth, we would assume. So what does that do for this young couple? It establishes their home beautifully and very nicely. That's the abundance of the Messiah. Finally, Jesus saved the best for last. There's... There, there's stuff I could tell you. I'd need to do more research about Dionysius, the god of wine, who was worshipped in Ephesus, from which place John most likely wrote, and how it's a cheap imitation. And, and it was an awful festival when drunken mess when people would get together. Jesus is, John's like, none of that cheap imitation. This is the real thing, and he's saving the best for last. That doesn't mean that life is always happy. In fact, Jesus tied this first sign with the ultimate sacrifice when he told Mary, my hour has not yet come. He was referring to the hour of his crucifixion that would be, now you think about it, his death would be the basis of eternal life and abundant life in the present for his followers. Jesus' public ministry, which would end at the cross, had begun. And it is because of the cross that we can have true meaning. It's Jesus' blood that brings us rich food and rich wine. Again, just to give you an example, not in my notes, but it's, it's there. Moses turned the water into blood. Jesus turns the water 
into wine. Judgment. Blessing. It is Jesus' blood that brings us rich food, rich wine. It is Jesus' resurrection on the third day that guarantees that one day there will be no more sorrows, no more heartbreak. Every tear will be dried. Every wrong will be righted. Every sin will be wiped out. Nothing ever again to staunch the flow in the spirit of the celebration. There's better news than that. Life can be good right now. It's that the best is yet to come. And your suffering now will only sweeten the reality of eternity with Jesus. So it's time for us to come to the table where we will partake of the bread and the fruit of the vine, which today is Welch's. It's, it's not a California uh, vintage. But do you see the connection? Connections, there's, it's everywhere. God's design is so much more complex and so much more beautiful than we could possibly imagine. In just a few moments, um, I'm going to ask the elders and deacons to come forward to serve the elements. You will be served at your seat. And if you have repented of your sins and if you have trusted Jesus' death on the cross as payment for your sin, then we invite you to participate with us. Before the servers come forward, I want to point your attention to Psalm 75, verse 8. For in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drink it down to the dregs. Now, this is a whole different cup of wine than the wine that was being served at the, at the banquet. This is unquestionably the cup of God's wrath that is poured out on sinners. It is all also the cup that Jesus asked to pass from him. It is also the cup that Jesus raised and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. He drank it to its dregs. And what he offers now is the wine of forgiveness and life and joy. The elders and the deacons and the worship team would <clears throat> come forward. The ones who are serving today, if you would come. We have this front row, uh, so we will be able to use it today. Hear these words from Luke. 22. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now, we get um, 
the fact that Jesus longed to be with his disciples. But for him to say, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you, shows his heart knowing that there is great suffering in the next 24 hours that's going to come upon all of them. But one day there's going to be a celebration that makes Cana look like nothing. And he's saying, I desire, but this is what is required in order for us to get to that celebration, to have life, is from my suffering. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He's going to drink again one day, but it'll be when he returns. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The old covenant didn't work. That water in the purification jars was turned into wine, because that's what worked. Jesus' blood being shed for us. We will, um, in just a moment, pray for this um, the Lord's blessing on partaking of the bread. And then we'll pass, and if you will, hold the element until elements until we are finished. Lee Williford, would you give thanks for the body that was given for us? Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.